I'm Toby Logsdon, and this is your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 23, Solomon writes, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. The lesson that Solomon lays out for us in this verse is pretty straightforward. It's a contrast between what the righteous person wants and what the evil person deserves. The book of Daniel gives us a perfect picture of what this looks like when it's played out in real life. Daniel was described by God in Daniel chapter 10 verse 11 as a man greatly beloved. Daniel was a righteous man who loved God and stood for truth in the face of the harshest adversity. He wouldn't relent in his faith even when it may have cost him his life at times. King Belshazzar, however, was the exact opposite. He had no love or fear of God. He stood for whatever would make him well-liked, whatever felt good at the moment. And on a side note, which of these two descriptions sounds most similar to how people would describe you? Just something to consider. Daniel's one desire was obedience to God. Contrast that with the expectations of Belshazzar. It wasn't until he saw a hand ominously writing on the wall that he gave his adulterous, drunken, rebellious life a second thought, and he was suddenly scared sober. His moment of wrath was coming sooner than he had prepared for. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 30 tells us, That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. For the wicked person, the only thing they should expect is the unleashing of God's wrath one day. The desire of the righteous is to do God's work on earth. In our next verses, chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, Solomon writes, There is one who scatters, and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. This is one of those lessons that we often learn the hard way, and it's difficult for us to accept what Solomon's trying to teach us here. The wise person holds their possessions with an open hand rather than a closed hand, realizing that the things that they own were given to them for a season by God, and that God gives us things so that we can use them for his own purposes. There's one issue that Jesus brought up more often than any other, more often than heaven, more often than hell, more often than than life or death, and more than the law of Moses, money. Why do you think Jesus talks so much about money? It's because there's no other issue, no other thing that even comes close to contending more strongly for God's place in our hearts than money does. Nothing else even comes close. Solomon's giving us this principle of holding our things, yes, even our money, with an open hand because we reap what we sow. Now imagine trying to plant a garden. You do all the work to turn the soil over so that it's nice and loose and that so that it'll support a root system more easily. You buy the fertilizer, deciding that you know you can live with the smell of cow manure because it's a necessary evil or whatever. And when it comes to spreading seed on the fertile ground, you keep those seeds in a tightly closed fist. You might get a couple of seeds that accidentally fall out to the sides, but your seeding is so sparse that your neighbors maybe start thinking that you're planning on starving yourself to death. If you sow sparsely, you will reap sparsely. And that's sparsely, not parsley. On the other hand, Solomon tells us that if we sow generously, we'll reap generously. Jesus told us why that is. He said, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. That's from Luke chapter 16, verse 10. We have churches that are filled with people who are thinking, I'll give more faithfully someday when I make more money, when I get rich. You know what? No, you won't. You're only lying to yourself because if you can't be faithful with a little, you won't be faithful 
with much. That's what Jesus is saying there. What happens when people start making more money is they start finding more ways to spend more money. They get a bigger house or a bigger car. They go out to eat more often at nicer restaurants. They remodel their house. They grow into a more expensive lifestyle. And believe me, I know I've been in that cycle. The sad fact is that a lot of Christians live with the attitude that says, God, I surrender my heart and soul to you, but my money? Hold on now. My money still belongs to me. Perry Noble puts it this way, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have an exact quote. He says, we believe in God enough to save us from going to hell, but we don't believe in him enough to change the world. Have you ever been totally lost? I was recently reading about a running race that they do in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and it's over 150 miles that the contestants have to cover in only five days. And you can't bring a lot of things with you over those 150 miles other than food and water, a flare gun, and a compass. Well, the most valuable thing that they have out of all of those things is probably the compass. Why? because the course isn't marked at all. They have to constantly be figuring out which direction they should run in, and they've found people over 100 miles off course in the history of that race. But here's what I'm trying to get at. Just like a compass reveals which direction you're going, where you spend your money reveals where your heart is going. Jesus said it this way, Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, here's the key point, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's from Matthew chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. The point is this, if your treasure is in heaven, your checkbook will clearly reflect that. For that reason, be a faithful steward with what God has blessed you with, because it's all his anyway. Solomon's lesson here is this, hold your blessings and resources with an open hand and sow generously. This concludes lesson one. Lesson two. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 26, Solomon writes, He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. It's common practice in our world today for a person to apply the law of supply and demand to their business. In other words, businesses will commonly withhold a portion of their supply until demand increases. At that point, They sell their product for the greatest possible profit. Now, a few years ago, prices for gasoline in the United States soared to over $3.50 per gallon as the gas companies cut back on their production. What was the result? Backlash and anger from the public. These were the same companies that were reporting profits of $10 billion per quarter. And all of a sudden, people started realizing that these excessive profits were coming at the expense of of the common person who had no choice but to pay top dollar for their gasoline. The gas companies are, to this day, still one of the most scorned industries in the world, especially with the BP leak in the Gulf of Mexico this summer. Or think of banks. A few years ago, banks were raking in profits by the billions as the housing market went haywire. And yet large banks did so at the expense of their own employees whose health insurance was either removed completely or so greatly diminished or minimized that it amounted to nothing. Could the banks have afforded to continue providing quality health insurance? Absolutely. 
but they didn't because it wouldn't have made their shareholders happy. Banks were quicker to leave employees unhappy than shareholders. On the other hand, if a company is willing to see less profit for the sake of providing a necessary good, the public will love them for it. I'm reminded of companies like Starbucks who have gone against the trend by continuing to provide health insurance for every single employee, whether an employee is full-time or part-time. The result is that Starbucks employees are happy and well cared for and provided for. As Sir Fred Catherwood once wrote, Greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. We grab what we can, while we can, however we can, and then we hold onto it hard. End quote. Or, if you prefer in the words of short, creepy-looking, fictional bald people, the Oompa Loompas saying in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, If you're not greedy, you will go far. You will live in happiness too, like the Oompa Loompa Doompity do. End quote. Gotta love a little Oompa Loompa theology. Had to throw that in there, folks. Anyway, in our next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 27, Solomon writes, He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil, evil will come to him. Now, it's astounding to think that there are people who deliberately seek evil, but Scripture is black and white on this issue. The condition of the human heart is fallen, and people are bent towards sin. Nobody is good except God alone. Our study of the book of Proverbs has revealed, however, that wisdom is stationed on the roadside on the highway to hell, directing anyone who will listen to turn back. Those who continue on are seeking evil by refusing that which alone is good. The person who responds to the gospel message by believing, however, does so because they understand, at least at some level, that the author of Hebrews is correct in saying that without faith it is impossible to please God. That's from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. The vast majority of translations render the first verse as saying, he who diligently seeks good finds favor. We seek good when we seek to be conformed to the image of God's only Son, Jesus. And we find favor in doing so because God favors his Son. When we're united with Jesus, as described in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, we find ourselves on the receiving end of that favor as well and become co-heirs of God's rich inheritance. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28, Solomon writes, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. One of the most famous verses from Proverbs actually deals with the issue of trust. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 said what? It said, to trust in the Lord with all of your, what? Your heart, and don't rely on your own understanding. We've already seen that money is the most dangerous contender for God's place in our hearts, and that where our money goes serves as an indication of of what? Where our heart is, right? So being that money is such a threat to our hearts, it's not a surprise that there would be a temptation for us to trust in our riches instead of trusting in God. What will money get you? A nice car? A nice house? Maybe some more friends? None of those things even matters. None of those things are coming with us to the grave. Solomon tells us that the result of trusting in our money, the result of giving money precedence over God in our hearts, is that the person will fall. Now, nobody sets out to fall, but how many set out to make more and more riches? Almost everyone. Solomon contrasts this with the righteous, telling us that the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Why? Because even if they have money, they don't let their money have them. Instead, what do you think they do? They trust in the Lord 
with all of their heart. The heart is directly connected in the Bible to our actions, so if we trust God with all of our heart, He makes our path straight, and thus the righteous will flourish. This concludes Lesson 2. Lesson 3. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 29, Solomon writes, He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. The first thing we should note here is that there isn't a contrast being made, and in this section, Solomon has been making one contrast after another. It's actually the same person being described in the first and second halves of this proverb. Solomon first tells us that the person who troubles his own house will inherit wind. And he's not talking about parents here. Rather, it's pretty clear that this is talking about children, since it's children who receive the inheritance of the parents. So what does it mean to inherit wind? Well, the word wind is really just a fancy word for moving air. What an inheritance, right? The child who's constantly in trouble with the law will prove to be expensive for their parents. Why? Because the parents will be busy paying for attorney costs, counseling fees, hospital bills, and so on and so forth. The inheritance that the child would have received essentially gets spent by the parents on trying to save the life of their child before the child is old enough to move out on their own. If you live at home and you're living a lifestyle that indirectly costs your parents a fortune, Solomon tells us that you're bound to end up with nothing but a bunch of moving air. And then what will you do? Well, you won't have a nest egg to get started with in life, and so Solomon tells us that you'll end up being a servant to someone who apparently behaved a lot better than you when they were young, because they'll be able to profit from their inheritance. In our next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, Solomon writes, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. For followers of Jesus, there are few things in life that bring joy the way that leading someone to Christ does. I know that for myself, personally, I'm never so motivated to do ministry as I am after receiving word that someone, somewhere, has come to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, trusting in Him alone for their salvation as a result of something they heard me say or teach. Of course, on my own, I'm not able to win anyone for Christ. Only the work of the Holy Spirit can convict and convince someone to follow Jesus. That's His job, and it's something that neither I, nor anyone else for that matter, is qualified to or capable of doing. Salvation is efficiently the work of God and His alone. Nevertheless, we, as followers of Jesus, can be instruments of righteousness in God's hand, and He can use us to reach others on His behalf. We can help lead the proverbial horse to water, but only the work of the Holy Spirit can convince them to drink. Now, if leading one person to Christ is a joy, imagine the joy of seeing the seed that you planted in their life grow into what Solomon calls a tree of life. This tree is constantly producing more and more fruit, which in turn gives us what? More seeds, which in turn gives us what? More fruit. This is called a ministry of multiplication, and it works like this. Let's say that one person brings two of their friends to Christ, and let's say that those two friends each bring two people to Christ, and let's say that those four people each bring two people to Christ, and so on and so forth. That's what I call a ministry of multiplication. That's a tree of life. And this is what we've seen as fruit from the lives of so many wise followers of Jesus throughout history. It's definitely feasible, and I would encourage you personally to pursue that type of fruit in your life as well. In our next verse, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31, Solomon writes, If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? 
Now, depending on which translation of the Bible you're using, this can be a pretty tricky verse to understand. It's really not that complicated, though. The New International Version, the NIV, is a little more of a paraphrase than a translation here, but it makes this verse a little easier to understand, rendering this verse as saying, if the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? Do the righteous receive their due on earth? Well, only to an extent, maybe, but they're not living for an earthly reward anyway. The righteous do what? They store up their treasures in heaven. If the righteous do get anything they're due on earth, it's only to a minimal extent. And that's why Solomon contrasts that with how much more the wicked and the sinner. How much more what? How much more they'll receive what's due to them. The wicked and sinful store up treasure on earth, investing in cars and careers instead of the kingdom. Think of it this way. The lesson here is that earth is the closest that the follower of Jesus will ever come to experiencing hell, but it's the closest that the wicked will ever come to experiencing heaven. This concludes lesson three. Lesson four. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse one, Solomon writes, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. It's one of those things that we call a fact of life, I guess. The average person just doesn't like discipline. Nowhere is that more evident than in our schools. Once upon a time, it was expected that if a student didn't do well in a subject, they would fail. No longer is that the case, however. In this day and age, thanks in large part to the No Child Left Behind Act, schools will lose funding for not passing students. The result is that there's no need for anyone in public school to have any sort of discipline. If they don't have the discipline to study for a test and thus they fail, they're allowed to take it a second time, and if they don't pass again, they're given a third chance. Our schools are now set up to accommodate students who have no discipline. Failing a class is a form of reproof, and Solomon reveals that we're setting the next generation up to be what he calls stupid. He says, he who hates reproof is stupid. No pulling any punches there. The truth is that reproof is psychologically necessary for one to strive for knowledge with diligence. It teaches us to set our goals higher than where we currently are. The road which leads to the highest ground is often the most difficult to travel. The lesson here is that if we desire to know what's true, we have to accept that whatever is not true is necessarily false, no matter how much we wish it wasn't. Reproof is necessary incentive for intellectual growth. Rejecting reproof is the same as embracing stupidity, and conversely, embracing reproof is the same as loving knowledge. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 2, Solomon writes, A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. Having used verse 1 as a means of establishing his canvas, his proverbial canvas here, Solomon's going to use the next few verses to paint a portrait of different types of people. The Bible describes very, very few people as being good. Most characters from Scripture, whom even we view as being good, aren't given that title explicitly in Scripture. The first person who's said to receive favor from God is Noah. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 8 we read that quote Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And of course this must be understood in light of the entire context that we find it in which reveals that the hearts of men on the earth were continually wicked. Sin had become prevalent across the face of the earth, but Noah sought after God, making him the only good person on earth. Of course God condemned every wicked person on earth and spared only Noah and his family, but whether it's in this life or not, those who have rejected the Lord 
will face severe condemnation. But the follower of Christ faces no such threat. To the contrary, Paul tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And this is closely tied to the next verse, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 3, where Solomon writes, A man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. Now, the first half of verse 2 described a righteous person, and the second half of verse 2 described an evil person. Here in verse 3, it's the opposite. The first half of the verse describes an evil person, and the second half describes a righteous person. This ABBA structure is called a chiastic structure, and shows that verses 2 and 3 are very closely tied together and make one complete thought. The idea that Solomon is trying to teach us here is that the same wicked person who faces condemnation doesn't have a solid foundation to stand on. If you've ever been to the ocean, one of the things that I personally have always enjoyed doing as I stand on the shore is to stand in the sand and allow the incoming waves to slowly cause the sand under my feet to shift away. After only a few waves, you can feel your feet being buried below a couple inches of sand. The lesson here is that putting our trust for salvation in anything other than Jesus is like standing on that shifting sand. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, Solomon writes, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. A man is blessed if he has a good wife, but his life is miserable if she isn't so good. Marriage is a really serious matter, especially in the eyes of God. And it's very important, guys, that when you select someone to spend the rest of your life with, you do so in light of the realization that it's a covenant not a contract. It's a covenant that you're entering into. If you're marrying a woman because she looks good, and by the way, don't think for a second that guys don't do that because I know that they do it all the time. But if you're marrying a woman because she looks good, guys, you're making a foolish mistake. Her beauty will fade, I promise. But if you marry her because you love who she is as a person, you're making a wise choice. The word that gets translated as excellent here is better translated as virtuous. Thus, it's more accurate to say that a virtuous wife is the crown of her husband. But we're going to explore the topic of a virtuous woman in greater depth a little further into Proverbs. But for now, the point, guys, is to value godliness over glamour in a woman. I'm Toby Logson, and this has been your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. Hey everybody, this is Toby Logsdon from BibleStudyPodcasts.org. I want to personally thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to listen today and to study the Word of God with us. The only reason that we're able to provide our biblically sound teachings is because of the faithful giving of less than half of 1% of our listeners. I want to just take a moment to thank those of you who have supported our ministry and to encourage those of you who haven't to simply bring the issue to the Lord in prayer. If he's asking you to support our ministry, we depend on our listeners to keep us growing and going. You can help support our ministry by going to BibleStudyPodcasts.org and clicking on the support button on the right-hand side. There, you'll find a mailing address or a link to make a donation through PayPal. We thank you for listening today and pray that the Lord has blessed you and strengthened you through our teachings. Keep growing closer to Jesus.